The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau Episode 5 Don't Look a Gift Chicken in the Mouth While the delicate negotiations about the handover of Hong Kong were still ongoing, there was little British appetite to challenge the Chinese over the atrocities of Tiananmen Square in 1989. The USA and France had already openly sheltered young dissidents smuggled out from China within weeks of the incident. Britain decided to play poker instead. And I'm sure my two visitors from Maida Vale had got themselves inadvertently involved in some small way in this political game. That first official interview with the dim sum lunch, the taxi and apparent civility, was followed by about half a dozen more over the next few weeks. I can only describe the difference in their demeanour on returning home from those subsequent meetings. If their mood on returning after the first interview was like a brightly coloured balloon, in the following weeks, it was as if the balloon gradually lost all colour and buoyancy and finally deflated to a grey piece of rubber on the floor. They never wanted to tell me the details, but once in a while, during subdued chats, they would hint at the dejection they were experiencing. We have told them about everything still in the London Embassy and all the people we knew in Beijing. We went through in detail where the transmitters were placed in the building, but they still were not satisfied. They wanted to know the make of the transmitters and the time they were installed. They asked us questions about people we hardly knew in Beijing. Did they make the answers a condition of you getting asylum? A pained silence. I also noticed that each time after those subsequent meetings, they would rush to the kitchen as soon as they came home to make themselves tea and supper. Obviously, there were no more nice dim sum lunches. I remember clearly, maybe after the last interview, Lai Suk said, in a temper highly unusual for him. Not even a glass of water. Xilanzai, damn gangsters. Looking back, I don't think it is too far-fetched to surmise that those interviews were carried out by the MI5 to obtain every drop of information for future use. I do not believe the purpose was solely to verify their status as genuine applicants for political asylum or to find out whether they were double agents of the Chinese regime. Lai Suk and Lai Sum felt frustrated because those meetings became increasingly disconnected with their desire to be granted status to stay, either temporarily or permanently in the United Kingdom, and more importantly, for a safe refuge. This feeling was confirmed by infrequent conversations with Bernard Simons, their legal representative. He was always civil and kind to them, but could say no more than sit tight and wait. The trips to the Home Office interviews had made them a bit more confident, 
So when I told them they must get out of the house now and again, they welcomed this prompt and started to take short walks around the local streets, but only when it was completely dark. I found myself so relieved during these short breaks that I blasted out Freddie Mercury's I want to break free through the speakers and did a sing-along in the house, wishing their short walks would become longer. My foreseeable escape to India was still several weeks away. I would leave in November and work there till Christmas, then go straight to see my parents and my sister in Hong Kong. But in the meantime, I was still living in London to continue preparing the production both at the office in Soho and at home. I began to find myself very irritable towards my visitors and also felt very ashamed of my behaviour. I was beginning to lose respect for Lysok because he did not seem to be doing anything, just smoking and moping. Every time I needed a break from my study to go out to do a bit of gardening, I would find him already there, greeting me kindly and giving me so many compliments about my garden. I never asked anybody to help me with gardening, and I considered it a very therapeutic and private activity. When I was on my knees doing the hard job of late summer pruning, I would suddenly hear his feet wearing my gardening clocks, approaching me with a full watering can ready to help. I was so mean that I would not turn round to acknowledge this offer of assistance, and I would hear him quietly slope away, leaving the watering can at my side. By contrast, Lysam always managed to be busy. She hurried round the house, walking in small rapid steps, she still wore those thin nylon plastic pumps with a mesh covering the whole foot except for the very tip. I thought she would soon need new ones when the drizzle turned to rain. She would either be cleaning the whole house, cooking or mending. I never saw him helping her with housework or cooking. Although I insisted on separate meal schedules, I still included their groceries in my own shopping. These were accepted with embarrassment and profuse apologies. But I noticed that they often supplemented these with their own dried vegetables and meat. I realised that the enormous suitcase I had brought home in that nighttime dash from Maida Vale contained the rations of experienced refugees. Tobacco, a good supply of dried goods to last for months, and other essentials such as soap and toiletries from their cut-price shops at the basement of the embassy building. I once bought them a fat chicken, but it was turned down. The gift had crossed the line from basic sustenance to luxury. I insisted, and we left it in the fridge to see who would win the argument. I did not think any more of it until I opened the freezer after a few weeks and its naked grey frozen carcass fell out. Bits of the skin had turned a funny colour. I put it into a bag and straight into the dustbin while they protested strongly. The next morning, I found that it had disappeared from the garbage and had in fact finally been made into a dish with black bean sauce. Waste not, one not, 
before it was a luxury but now could not be wasted. They also began to understand my peculiar need for solitude and we did not have to chit-chat when seeing one another for the first time that day. It was beginning to be like having two lodges in the house and we smiled and passed one another in the narrow corridor and on the staircase without having to stop and socialise. As my trip to India loomed closer and I knew I would be away until January in the new year, I now faced the predicament of leaving the two of them in my house alone. Previous worries in my imagination, this included Chinese agents having a shootout with MI5 outside my home in the suburban streets of Southfields, morphed into worries about burglaries and frozen pipe bursts. I decided to break the news of their existence to my close friends Brenda and Robin, who live across the park. I've known them for years, and little Toby, their red-haired two-year-old, is my godson. My friend's reaction to the news reflected my own some six weeks ago. Utter amazement tinged with the delight of an adventure. Being described as a kind hero by them naturally flattered my ego. Of course, I did not tell them the gloomy reality that prevailed inside our household at the time. I explained the predicament of me leaving for India and wanting my guests to have people they could trust close by. My kind-hearted friends immediately invited us to have a Sunday roast lunch with them. I was a bit surprised that the invitation was greeted with reluctance. Lysam politely suggested that, instead, my friends could come home for tea and they would get some cakes. I never really got to the bottom of their thinking. But I wonder if I had said that my friends were Chinese, whether they would have had the same reaction. I understood that they did not want to appear in the daylight and meet strangers, especially English strangers. They might be two well-educated, high-ranking diplomats who had suffered under the Cultural Revolution in their youth and now found themselves stateless in the UK, but some of their attitudes to the West were as old as China behind the bamboo curtain in the 19th century. But I also understood they may feel the onus of traditional strictures of Eastern etiquette, never accepting a gift that you cannot return in kind. I'm ashamed to say that I got very touchy and insisted they needed to accept the invitation to lunch. I explained that in case of emergency, they would know who and where to run to. What else would they do? Dial 999? Could they ever imagine any emergency services listening to their story in broken English while the villains were trying to get in? The day of the Sunday lunch came later in July. It was a strange feeling as I locked my front door to realise that it was the first time since we went to the barbers that we left the house as a threesome. I had already told them I would not be driving us as it was just a healthy 25 minutes walk away. My secret purpose was also to make them familiar with the geography of the local area. It was a sunny day and our route took us through Wimbledon Park. 
a beautiful recreational area of rolling grassy expanses and ponds full of birds. Lysam and Lysok spontaneously uttered words of delight at the sight of the English shrubs and trees. They were still wearing their oversized dark shades and occasionally would peer closely at the rose to see if they could detect any fragrance. I was strangely encouraged and even took pride in the unique charm of the English urban park with its well-stocked flower beds and sense of safe community. I was so touched but not surprised that my friends Brenda and Robin welcomed Lysuk and Lysam with open arms. I could see their warmth offered my visitors a glimpse into British domestic life which had hitherto remained unfamiliar. My dear old friend Brenda had already checked with me what food these exotic visitors would like. The presence of the cutest red-headed toddler also made the atmosphere seem carefree and normal, masking my real agenda to provide a safe haven for them in my impending absence. Lysuk and Lysam were astonished to see the similarities of my friend's terraced house to mine. The offer of pre-dinner drinks was politely turned down by them, but gratefully accepted by me. The wonderful aroma of the roast in the oven was commented upon, followed by an inquisitive exploration of the house. There was much admiration of its Edwardian decor and intricately tiled fireplaces and floors. The conversation turned to how fields in this area south of the Thames had been transformed into residences for railway workers at the turn of the 20th century. How different to the history of China at that time. It seemed like an unimaginable fantasy to Lysuk and Lysam that any government or industrial magnate would have enacted such benevolent plans for workers in the capitalistic Western world. The ping of the kitchen timer interrupted the convivial conversation and as we eased towards the lunch table, I noticed that Lysuk and Lysom had no intention of taking off their big dark sunglasses. I was bemused and then annoyed by this prima donna-like behaviour all through the visit. Brenda had made an elaborate three-course lunch and I could see that they were touched by the hospitality but they just would not remove their sunglasses. Lysam kept asking my two-year-old godson questions and I could see little Toby's blue eyes widen in utter incomprehension and not a little alarm, with this smiling Chinese lady in dark glasses bearing down on him. They were genuinely fascinated by the child's carrot-coloured mop and that his parents' hair did not bear a single strand of the same tint. After dessert, I brought up the subject of my impending departure for India, and my kind friends immediately offered all the help, hospitality and advice that Lysuk and Lysam might need. This was done in such sincerity of tone that no one could doubt their genuine kindness. I could see Lai Sook getting a bit teary-eyed and his hand reaching for his cigarette packet. So the whole evening ended up in a rather quaint Edwardian mode 
with the women going upstairs to put the child to bed and the men going off to smoke in the garden. Any prying neighbours could see that one of them was still wearing dark glasses. In retrospect, the fact that they would not take them off in spite of my frequent requests perhaps shows the very stubbornness which enabled them to survive the many misfortunes in their lives. But at that moment, all I could see was a kind of irritating and disrespectful naivety. Of course I realised that it was smug and condescending to hold this attitude towards them. I had not been raised in a society where the authorities have an Orwellian control over their citizens, where the neighbourly old grannies may be the very ones to shop you over any deviation from party rule, including that of being pregnant when there is already one child in the family. On the morning of August the 4th, the clatter of the metal post flap on my door announced the arrival of two small brown envelopes. They looked just like any other official post and in fact made me worried for a few seconds that they were tax demands for me from the Inland Revenue until I saw my visitors' names on them and the Home Office crest on the cover. I handed the envelopes to Lysok, saying very little. So, I asked after a while, We are now refugees. He said those words without much emotion, and she just kept studying the letters over and over. There was the strangest atmosphere in that room. Something so important and ultimately almost monumental in their lives was greeted with a kind of muted diffidence. I felt the same. It was odd to read those two identical printed letters with just their names, their dates of birth, their reference numbers and the official signature in almost indecipherable handwriting. It was obviously a standard home office communique from the Croydon office to all applicants granted refugee status. My visitors had been granted leave to remain in the United Kingdom until the following was handwritten, 3rd of August 1993. They were also instructed to keep the letter carefully, as the letter says, as your authority to remain in the UK. Shortly before the end of your four years leave to remain, you can apply for indefinite leave to remain. You must now register with the police. Please take this letter to your local police station as soon as possible. All three of us sat in the now smoke-filled dining room with the unspoken question, What now? The objective of getting asylum had been achieved, but rather than jubilation, we all had a rather sickly feeling in our stomachs. My immediate inner thought was that Lysuk and Lysam could not possibly expect to be staying at my house for another five months, let alone four years when they would be allowed to apply for citizenship. They seemed to be in a sort of reverie and rather subdued. So 
I galvanised us into thinking of the practicalities. I rang Bernard Simons to tell him the good news and thanked him for his work. He was really surprised that they had been granted asylum so quickly. He asked whether we had towed their daughter and son-in-law in Japan and then faxed them the all-important home office letters regarding their parents' status. Then I had to look up the Wandsworth telephone directory to see where the main police station was, as I like to think, rightly or wrongly, that the smaller station would not have the right stamp for our purpose. It turned out to be so routine that everything we did that day felt like an anticlimax. We also rang their niece Becky in Hong Kong. She sounded relieved but did not mention anything about what needed to happen next. This began to worry me a great deal all through our trip to the travel document section of the Home Office at Croydon. Lysuk and Lysum agreed with me that we should try to get everything legit and then sit down and think about what our future might be. They said they would like to try and get their permitted travel documents in case they might need to flee again. It shocked and saddened me that, even now, their insecurity and fear had not left them. It was odd to be in that vast building of bureaucracy at the Home Office in Croydon. This is where those two letters granting them asylum in the UK had been sent from and now, less than a day later, we were back to try to get documents for them to get out of the country. We went to a photo booth to get their ID pictures and then found the right section. After a long time waiting for our turn at the special requirements section, we produced the letters and explained that they would like to apply for travel documents. A few questions and much form-filling ensued, and then the young woman behind the window produced two documents with blue covers. These were smaller than a regular passport, but with the same UK crest embossed on them, together with another word, refugee. £50, please. A shocking price, I thought. They were surprised by this demand for money on their first day of freedom. I was mean enough to say... This is the price of democracy. It would be fair to describe the period that followed as the start of the levels of purgatory. The first week after they were granted asylum, we continued living together, but now in an awkward silence and under a dark cloud of inertia. A voice in my head was constantly demanding, what happens next? We went to the housing department of Wandsworth Council with every single document we could lay our hands on. After hours of soul-destroying waiting, the woman at the desk called us forward. She asked how long they had been staying in Wandsworth. I had already explained this to her and shown her the letters and documents indicating that these were refugees and defectors from the Chinese embassy in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Surely, madam, you must have heard that in the news only two months ago. They have been living in my house here in Wandsworth for two months. Sarcasm never went down well in these situations with life-hardened officials. You need to have been staying in the borough for at least two years in order to apply for housing. But they are refugees. 
I'm not a relative. I should be asking them to leave my house soon. Immediately, I turn to my visitors and reassure them in Cantonese. Gong Dai Wa means that's not true. Sorry, these are the rules. Subsequent calls to the Citizen Advice Bureau produced the same results. We approached the British Refugee Council, which was mentioned in the Home Office letter as a potential source of help. But the kind voice at the other end of the phone said that they could only help with refugees who had been sheltering in government safe houses and had no other roof over their heads. I thought they would really look after us. After all, we cooperated and gave them all we knew. Well, they gave you both asylum in almost record time. But they are not interested in us. My Chinese visitors from Maida Vale thought that their work and connection in technology and trade before their defection would bring in offers of work from the British government as a package together with asylum. They genuinely thought that their status as diplomats, class one, would mean that they would be given special treatment once they had been accepted as refugees. Instead of which, they instantly became anonymous and without importance. I think even after just one week as refugees, there were voices in their heads which screamed, What have we done? The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau was produced by Mukti Jain Campion and it's a culture-wise production. In the final episode, Patrick discovers that his house has been burgled and his guests are having secret meetings with a mysterious Englishman. But why?